All right, can you Hello. hear me? Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everyone, and welcome Thank to you. the Pre-Opera Talk. Uh, I'm Arthur White, Director of External Affairs with Detroit Opera. And my name is Andrea Scovey. I am the Director of Education. Um, thank you all so much for coming out a little bit early tonight and joining us for this talk. We are so excited to welcome two incredible guests for you this evening to speak about this opera, uh, to lend so much insight. Arthur will uh, introduce them and give them a formal introduction in just a minute. Um, but I'll start just by giving a brief word of context to what we're about to see tonight with Fountain of Tears, Ina Damar. So this is an opera uh, that focuses on the life of Federico Garcia Lorca. Uh, Lorca was a, uh, one of the most influential uh, Spanish playwrights and poets uh, of the 20th century. His legacy uh, still lives into our world today. Um, Lorca is very commonly credited with being one of the early writers to introduce surrealism into literature. Um, he was a member of a group known as the Generation of 27, a group of artists out of Madrid that included, among others, Salvador Dali. Um, and his politics and his sexuality eventually would get him murdered at the hands of the state in the early days of the Spanish Civil War. Um, so this is a person who had an incredible life, um, an influential life, unfortunately with a tragic end. Um, and the story we're going to see tonight is really told through the eyes of Lorca's friend, collaborator, his muse, uh, somebody named uh, Margarita Shirgu. And Margarita was a Spanish actress. Um, she premiered all of Lorca's plays. Um, she had this incredible stage presence. And she is really also credited and known for keeping his legacy alive after his death. Um, after Lorca's death, his works were banned by the regime in Spain. His works were publicly burned. And it really wasn't even safe to talk about uh, Lorca in his home country until after um, Franco's death. And Margarita, wherever she was in the world at that time, was performing in Lorca's plays and telling his story. Um, and those are the eyes through which we see the story this evening. So I'm happy to offer that context. You will be able to hear so much more um, from our guests who will tell us all of that and go even deeper. Um, and Arthur is going to go ahead and welcome them. Very good, I will. But we have two special guests. Uh, the first is Detroit Opera's own artistic director, fresh off uh, the success of his latest project, uh, Proximity, uh, which bowed at Lyric Opera of Chicago just recently, I believe tonight's last performance, uh, hailed by all the critics, uh, including the New York Times. He's going to interview our other special guest, two-time Grammy Award winning uh, a composer uh, who hails from Argentina. Uh, he completes his musical studies in Israel and the United States, and he has a big splash with his piece, La Pasión Según San Marcos, the, uh, the uh, Passion of St. Mark, and his star has only continued to rise and shine more brightly all the way through his first opera, Ina Damar, which we're going to see uh, here, here tonight, Fountain of Tears. Uh, please welcome Mr. Osvaldo Goliath and uh, Yuval Schroen. Hi, everybody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, hello. Hi. Well, this is really a very rare treat for me to be able to interview someone who has become my friend in the intervening few years, Osvaldo Golikov. And I just want to harken back to the, the first time that I met Osvaldo was actually here in Detroit because Osvaldo came to see the production that opened this theater after COVID of La Boheme, which I directed. And Osvaldo, I don't know if you remember this, but w uh, someone in the audience during this pre-show talk, for th how many people saw La Boheme? Do we have, okay, all right, that's great. That's very exciting. So <laughs> you might recall that uh, we told the opera 
in reverse chronology, starting with the end of the opera and going back to the beginning. And before anyone saw it in the first uh, uh, audience conversation, someone said, well, what do you think Puccini would make of all this? And I said, well, I can't ask him. Uh, I've tried reaching him, and he won't answer any of my emails. So um, we have a rare opportunity here to have uh, somebody who can answer uh, <laughs> the questions related to the music. And it's part Excellent. of why we're not doing this opera in reverse order, because Osvaldo is here. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was great that you came here to see uh, Detroit, oh to get yeah to know Detroit yeah audiences. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And yeah, you can ask me. <laughs> <laughs> can we do it backwards? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, in this case, because of the dramaturgy of this piece, uh, you know, it might make sense. But actually, the musical structure of this, uh, you'll all hear uh, this this beautiful 80-minute piece that just takes you on a journey from beginning to end. It grabs you so powerfully right from the beginning and doesn't let you go all the way through. Um, when I first heard Osvaldo's music, it was what Arthur had described, the, the, the passion according to St. Mark. I was, um, uh, it was in, in New York at Carnegie Hall and one of the things that absolutely galvanized me when I heard this music was that Osvaldo took classical opera and operatic singing and he took the sounds of the streets, and he took street dancers, and he took a so many different forms and merged it into one utterly audacious and adventurous and energetic uh, evening. And there's something about that particular work that I hear a lot in um, Fountain of Tears as well. And I'm just curious, Osvaldo, um, how do you approach the notion of genre how do you know approach the notion of what it means to, to kind of mix what might seem like uh contrasting colors or contrasting right, musical ideas yeah. i you know it's a i i um i don't think about it but i can try to answer <laughs> i think <laughs> now <laughs> you know i think that the way i write um it's a little bit like my youngest daughter when she was little you know how children say um, eh, they, they are telling a, a story, well, this, th then this happened, and then, whoa, you know, <laughs> you know, and I love how they change the register, yeah. no explanation, <laughs> right? So, uh, I think, we, it's not that I meant to do this, but now, you know, that I've seen this piece a lot of times, and all of that, I realize, yeah, it's like now, and now, wow, <laughs> and now, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's yeah. just the, it's just, trying to tell the story in the um, most direct possible way, but also hopefully arrive to a certain transcendence. Yeah, you absolutely. Know. I think that you absolutely take us there. And I, I like that description because for an audience hearing it for the first time, you will it'll be difficult for you to predict exactly what is going to happen next musically. So I think that's kind of what you were yeah, referring well to. Yeah, well, the opera actually I in real time the opera is maybe two minutes long, right? <laughs> in chronological time, mm -hmm. what we call real time. But so much can happen. And because this actress, Margarita, is about to die. She, she doesn't know that she's dying. She's waiting, you know, maybe she's, I forget, she's in her 80s, I don't know. She's waiting to appear yet again to do her famous, the first role that she did for Garcia Lorca. Um, as she's waiting in the wings, all this flood of memories comes to her. 
And by the moment she goes on stage, two minutes later, all for us, 80 minutes happened. <laughs> so she, there's a lot of flashbacks. And but you know, I think that that you know how they say music is the architecture of time, right? And it's true, right? We look when we are into a great song, a great aria, a great symphony. We don't think uh, to, to, to <laughs> that disappears. It's the, there are rooms, there are stairs, there are uh, uh, ballrooms. You know, the, it, it, there is a true architecture, and to memory also there is a more fluid architecture. But but there is an architecture, and that is as real. The idea that 80 minutes can happen within two minutes is as real as the clock. You know, <laughs> I think. No, I, that's beautiful. Beautiful. And what kind of architecture do you think flamenco creates? <laughs> because uh, flamenco really is one of the, I would say it's one of the primary orchestral and musical colors of this particular right. palette. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, it's fair. Um, is, I think it's the architecture of fate. It's like, because, you know, Lorca didn't like to speak about flamenco, which became more and more of a, a commercial thing, like salsa, you know. But he he spoke about deep song, right? And deep song was um, primarily sung by Roma people, what we used to call gypsies, and that were condemned to death. So it's the rhythm of death. And that's the architecture of that. I mean, you bring that up and it makes me think of something that we haven't actually discussed, but I've, I, I think about a lot in this particular project, um, knowing that you have uh, Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. um, and um, there is in Spain, in the archaeology of this music, of flamenco in particular, there is this moment in time where Jewish and Arabic and Christian people were quite harmoniously living together in Andalusia. And there was this sense of the exchange of right. culture. It wasn't about any kind of competition between these three, even though at that time, in yeah. you know, there was uh, certainly a majority. But I don't know. Does do you think about any of that as it oh, relates totally. to this? Oh, totally. First of all, Lorca himself said that Spain got so impoverished when it expelled the Jews and the Arabs, right? And it's true. Became from this. Uh, incredible conversation between cultures, it became this very narrow provincial place. But the first, actually, the, you know, uh, I think a lot in images, N not purely visual. Sometimes they have texture or tactile or, you know, I, I, for me, the way how much pressure you apply on the bow is as important as, as the note that you are playing and so forth. But for this particular piece, here is the thing. So. Uh, Lorca was lived, was born and killed in Granada, right? And but Granada in Spanish is uh, 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 Granada is both the city but also the fruit, the pomegranate, right? So uh, I I remember what am I gonna do with this? <laughs> I, and I I said oh, okay, let's make a floating pomegranate that bleeds melodies that are. Christian and Jewish and Arab 
and Rome and all those people that were there in the 1300s, you know, because the fountain, Aina Damar, the fountain of tears, was a fountain so beautiful, was kind of a spring. It was so beautiful that all the Arab poets the, the of the golden era wrote poems to the fountain. And so the fountain, then, seven centuries later, we are supposed to be progressing, but no, it witnesses the killing of Spain's greatest 20th century poet. It's crazy, right? That the, the same fountain that was the recipient of all this beauty witnessed, not just Lorca, I mean, many, many people were killed there. Yeah, so Fountain of Tears, Aini Damar, is the name of this particular... Right, person. yeah, the Arab poets called it Aini Damar because it is a spring, so it kind of cries, you know, that, that, that was their thing. And there's another, I think, circularity that's at the core of this particular um, opera. And also just out of curiosity, has anyone seen a production of this opera anywhere? <laughs> so exciting. Okay, we kn I knew that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, we know about one. But um, this is, of course, one of the great treats for me is that this is uh, the first time that Detroit Opera is presenting this work, even though in the past 20 years it has had a lot of yeah. different productions. Um, so um, we, I know we're talking in uh, great detail about uh, the things that I'm really excited about, but let me take a step back and just make sure you're all with us on this journey of this piece. There's a character that I think is really important for us to tell you about. Um, she doesn't actually appear in the opera per se, but her name is Mariana Pineda. And she was a woman who lived in the 19th century who um, Lorca was completely obsessed with. Um, this woman, uh, it was another repressive regime in Spain, Ferdinand's regime, and Mariana Pineda was uh, caught sewing a flag for the kind of rebellious forces against Ferdinand. And this was for her own boyfriend to wave, I guess, and to encourage people to become more anarchic against, uh, the, against that regime. Uh, but they offered her the opportunity to uh, be free from prison if she tells the, 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 uh, the, the police <laughs> um, uh, who she was waving, uh, weaving this flag for. And because it was her own lover, she refused. And with that refusal, that refusal cost her her life. And she was then executed in 1831. A hundred years later, Lorca similarly executed for going against the repressive regime of, uh, at that time, the, the rising regime, of, of Franco's rising regime, and the Falange, the, Falange, the group that was, in, in a way, the kind of the muscle of this, uh, of this rising group, right? So that circularity between Mariana Pineda, I think, is, and, and Lorca, and this notion of uh, that repetition of time is yeah, so crucial. And, and that is, yeah, he became her, and they both shared the thing that they were, what they did was out of love, not out of ideology so much. It was just freedom and love. And, uh, you know, they didn't, you know, Lorca refused to sign manifestos of all the, uh, <laughs> you know, good people. Because he said, I am free. I'm, I am always for the poor. I'm always for the oppressed. But I don't belong to any movement. Um, and he paid for that, yeah. 
And of course, what's also thematized, especially in this production, is that Lorca was also gay. And at that time, with uh, Franco's uh, rise to power, very similar to what we saw in other fascist regimes at the time, was a kind of attempt to uh, create a kind of pure idea of a Spanish identity. And so this absolutely contrasted with that idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, uh, 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 the, you, there is a scene that you will see that is the, 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 the killer uh, reciting a string of accusations. And one of them is, of course, he's gay and he's, he did more damage with his pen than many others with their pistols, you know, and this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so what from Lorca, uh, Lorca's life, Mariana Pineda's life, I should say, so Lorca's first success, his first uh, successful play was uh, a lyrical adaptation of the life of Mariana Pineda. And in this particular opera, one of the first scenes, when we first meet Lorca, he talks about what it was like to look at her from the window. And I think it, I must say, it definitely inspired one of the most beautiful arias of, of a very beautiful score. Um, can right, you talk to us a right, little bit about that part? Because Lorca is telling his, the actress, Margarita, about Mariana Pineda. And, and Margarita says, Federico, you know, that's Lorca's name, Federico, you are so extraordinary, your play is revolutionary, and it's for justice. And he says, no, 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 no. Uh, I, this is not political. And she says, like, then why did you write it? You know, and he says, oh, because there was a statue of Mariana Pineda outside my window when I was a child, and I totally fell in love with her. And, and he tells how before he would fall asleep, she would come to life and come and kiss him. And to me, that is very, very important because uh, perhaps the what Lorca wanted to do with Mariana Pineda is what I wanted to do with Lorca, which is a, to not make him out of marble, to bring him back as a person with fears, because he was really scared when he was about to be killed, uh, with love of beauty, love of love, you know, like not become the iconic, n you know, not be, I don't want Lorca to be like the posters or t-shirts of Che Guevara. I want Lorca to be three-dimensional, you know. So with that, you also made a very uh, bold choice of uh, deciding to cast Lorca as a mezzo-soprano, um, which is, of course, I found it a very inspired choice because, of course, it connects to operatic history. Um, for anyone who saw Xerxes uh, just a couple months ago, uh, Handel loved doing this. Mozart loved doing this. They're called the pants rolls, you know, when a, when a mezzo-soprano soprano plays a uh, male character. Um, so this, there's an, I don't know why that tradition started back in that time, but it is one of the wonderful curiosities about opera is this kind of play of gender and, and play of roles. But why did you decide to do this for Lorca? Well, <laughs> that's uh, again, it's like, I mean, it was not bold. This was, <laughs> was, okay, so I was, the piece was commissioned by the Tanglewood Music Festival. And actually I, um, I was writing a different opera for it, you know. And I, I had decided to do it all just a women's cast. Um, and then it was not cooking, really, the other. So I said, 
uh, <laughs> I, I, this is not happening. Uh, so uh, I got to know David Huang, who is the extraordinary librettist of this piece, through a common friend. And, and I said, David, save me. Let's do something. And he says, OK, who, what do you love the most? Tell me something that you love. I said, oh, I love Lorca. OK, let's do something with Lorca. I said, yeah, but we have all women, so we don't have a Lorca. He said, OK, we'll do it about Lorca. And then I went to the offices of Tanglewood to hear the singers. Uh, because it was only one professional singer, Don Abshaw, who I hope many of you know, because she's a great artist. And then all the rest of the cast was students. Um, and I heard the tapes, and there was this dusky, amazing, dark voice. Uh, and I said, hey, <laughs> uh, there is something here. And then I look at, her, at the picture of this student, her name is, uh, now she's not a student, Kelly O'Connor. I don't know who, who of you may have heard. And she looks exactly like Lorca with these extraordinary eyebrows and dark eyes. So I called David. I said, hey, how about Lorca is a mezzo-soprano? And he said, okay. So it was not bold. It was simply like, oh, she looks like Actually, no, I tell you one thing. When we did it once with the Chicago Symphony and Lorca's niece, um, Laura Garcia Lorca came to the show, and then she came after the show to, to meet Kelly. And they look at each other and they started to cry because they really look the same. I mean, it was very uncanny. So it was not, again, it was not political, not ideological. It's like, oh, she looks like Lorca, and she sounds, I think she sounds like Lorca we have sounded. So let's do it. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. And I think we do pretty well here with Daniela Mack. I mean, she looks pretty extraordinary. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. It looks like Lorca as well. So this production uh, that is directed by Deborah Colker uh, originated at um, the Scottish Opera. Uh, we came on board. Detroit Opera came on board. Uh, we were the first company to come on board to co-produce this because I just loved this piece so much and because I was so excited that they hired someone like Deborah to direct it. This is her first opera, which you will not believe, because uh, it, she is uh, just a born director, as you can see. She's directed and choreographed quite a bit in, in Brazil with her own company, but she had such a natural um, connection to this music. Um, from the different productions that you've seen, I mean, you must have seen, I can't even think of how many you've seen. What if I was <laughs> dozens, <laughs> yeah. What was, your, what was your reaction when you saw Deborah's version in, uh, in at the Scottish Opera? Uh, you know, I, I loved many productions. Some I didn't, but that's okay. Um, but there are very, very, very few productions that I can say were revelations, that they say, I say, you know, um, Deborah by far is the most revelatory um, because this production is in this is in motion all the time. It's, it's almost like an hi a hybrid between opera and ballet. And then when there is a moment of stillness, it's all the more powerful, I think, you know, because she found kind of a, an undercurrent of structural rhythm that I didn't, I was not even aware of. Um, You'll see. I, I mean, you, it is very amazing. The other, the, but I, ca I can say that the other production that I remember that was a revelation was in, in Japan because they did it in an island. And I said, what is this? You know, I didn't understand. And then I said, oh, okay, because if you are only living in your memories, 
you are in an island. Uh, so, so yeah, that, well, you know, well, you are an amazingly imaginative director, but that to me is, um, is incredible. When you write something and you think you know, of course, I wrote it. But no, actually, somebody can understand it better than you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, I'm so glad to hear that because I agree that I think this production is an absolute revelation. And um, we're just about out of time, so I'm going to ask just one last question, which is a bit open-ended. But, uh, you know, is there anything, now that you know that so many people are about to just uh, experience your music for the first time, is there anything that you would like, any advice you'd like to give them for, uh, <laughs> for listening, for listening to this, for experiencing this? I love you, but I hate giving advice. <laughs> I mean, like, I really, like, I don't know. You know, I could say so many different things that, to me, they are, like I told you yesterday over dinner, I, it is my first opera, so I didn't know what I was doing. So I said, I cannot write an opera, but I know that I can write a great aria for a side B of the greatest hits of some mezzo-soprano album. <laughs> so I wrote the aria of Mariana, the window aria. That was my aim, to have a side B aria. So I, so I hope you enjoyed that aria, yes. because I worked yeah. a lot on that. I think you'll all enjoy a lot more than just that aria. Uh, it is a tremendous, tremendous score. I am so proud to be able to offer this production to all of you here. You know, when I joined Detroit Opera, one of my missions was to make sure that we diversified uh, the repertoire that all of you get to see here in Detroit. Uh, that doesn't just mean the uh, doesn't just mean uh, what gets presented, but who's presenting it, who are the composers, who are the singers, who are the conductors. And this is a really uh, extraordinary moment for this company because it's the first Spanish language opera that will be happening on this stage uh, with a cast that's all uh, Latinx uh, in the leads. Um, Deborah coming from Brazil, Paulo Bortolomeoli conducting, who comes from Chile. And the spirit in the room uh, of that familiarity with this language and this poetry, I think, has helped take this to the next level. So I really hope that you all enjoy that greatly um, and become, like me, you're likely to become a lifelong fan of this incredible man. Thank you so much, Osvaldo. Thank you. Let's just thank both our guests uh, once again, Osvaldo uh, Goliov and Mr. Yuval Sharon. Thank you all so much for attending the pre-opera talk, and please enjoy the performance.